0: Biblical Principles for Separating from Backsliding Churches. Separation and Schism. Distinctions You Need to Know, by Michael Wagner, 1999. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offences contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. Romans 16, verse 17. During the mid to late 1600s, thousands of Presbyterians in Scotland were martyred for their commitment to Biblical Christianity. They refused to worship in the churches sanctioned by a corrupt civil government and were hunted down and killed for worshiping according to the Bible in other places such as open fields. Like the covenanters of our day who are falsely accused of being schismatics for not uniting with compromised churches, the covenanter martyrs of the 17th century were also falsely accused of being schismatics. After all, by joining with the official Episcopal Church of the day they would be able to save their lives and property, though this would have been at the cost of faithfulness to Christ. It was to a large degree because of their so-called schismatic behavior that they were murdered by people who themselves claimed to be Christians. Anyone committed to biblical Presbyterianism would agree, however, that the Covenanters should fulfill their covenant oath to uphold Presbyterianism rather than compromise the truth for pragmatic reasons. These Covenanters sealed their commitment to the truth with their blood. Undoubtedly, it was painful for them to have other Christians heap abuse upon them by accusing them of schism while they died for the faith. Many other false charges were also laid against them. In order to defend themselves against these false charges and vindicate biblical Christianity, James Rennick, in cooperation with other Covenanters, wrote a short book entitled An Informatory Vindication of a Poor, Wasted, Misrepresented Remnant of the Suffering, anti popish Anti-Prelatic, Anti-Erastian, Anti-Sectarian True Presbyterian Church of Christ in Scotland. In this book, Rennick and the others deal with each of the various false accusations made against them. One chapter... Head 4, deals specifically with the charge of schism, quote, "...concerning that heavy though false charge of casting off the ministry and schismatical separation from the ministers of the Church of Scotland," unquote. Page 59. In the first section of this chapter, various crucial distinctions are made to clarify the issue of separating from unfaithful churches. Modern Christians will benefit considerably from understanding these distinctions and applying the implications of these distinctions to their own situations, there are eight specific distinctions. Quote, We shall distinguish, number one, between a church in her infancy and growing up into Reformation, and an adult church, which hath arrived at a higher pitch of Reformation. In the former many things may be tolerated, which may not in the latter. And therefore our fathers might have borne with many things in ministers, which we cannot, because we have been reformed from these things, which they were not. Unquote. Page Page 60. Just as Christians today look upon a new convert in a different way than they look upon a mature believer, so also this principle applies to churches corporately. We bear with many weaknesses in new converts because we know they need time to grow in the faith. Mature Christians, on the other hand, are expected to live at a higher degree of sanctification. Quote, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Unquote. Philippians 3 verse 16 it needs to be realized that this principle applies not only to individuals, but also churches. Quote, number 2 We distinguish between a church in a growing case, coming forward out of darkness and advancing in reformation, and a church declining and going back again. In the former, many things may be born with, which in the latter are no ways to be yielded unto, as in the time of the former prelacy many did hear prelatical men, which now we cannot do, and so in other things. Unquote. Pages 60-61 to 61. A church growing towards the truth and ridding itself of unscriptural practices and beliefs is one thing. A church falling away from its doctrinal and practical attainments is quite another. Again, as in the previous case, don't we look at growing Christians in a different light than backsliders? Of course we do. And this principle applies to churches as well as individuals. Quote, number three. We distinguish between a Church in a reformed and settled State, and confirmed with the constitutions of General Assemblies, and the civil sanctions of Acts of Parliament, and a Church in a broken and disturbed State. In the former, abuses and disorders can be orderly redressed and removed by Church judicatories, but not so in the latter. Wherefore, the most lawful, expedient, and conducible mean for maintaining the attained unto Reformation is to be followed in the time of such confusions and disturbances, and that is, as we think, Abstraction and withdrawing from such disorders and ministers, which we cannot otherwise get rectified, Unquote. page sixty one in Presbyterian, that is truly biblical theology, there should only be one church for each nation, and this church should be supported by the civil government, Quote, and kings shall be thy nursing fathers Unquote. isaiah forty nine verse twenty three Of course, this church would have to be a biblical Presbyterian Church. in this case, problems could be dealt with according to proper Presbyterian church order. However, in a situation such as today, where the Church is broken and divided, the principles of Church unity that apply in a settled state cannot be acted upon. Recognizing that the Church is in a broken and disturbed state in our day is a crucial factor in determining how to deal with ecclesiastical problems, as Rennick notes above. Quote Number four We distinguish between a Reformed Church enjoying her privileges and judicatories, and a Reformed Church denuded of her privileges and deprived of her judicatories. In the former, people are to address themselves unto church judicatories and not to withdraw from their ministers, especially for ordinary scandals, without making prior application to these. But in the latter, when ministers are really scandalous, though not juridically declared so, and duly censurable according to the word of God and their own church's constitutions, and censures cannot be inflicted through the want of church judicatories, and yet they still persist in their offensive courses, people may do what is competent to them and testify their sense of the justness of the censure to be afflicted by withdrawing from such ministers even without the presbyterial sentence. Unquote. Pages 61 to 62. Presbyterian theology advocates the use of church courts to rectify problems with ministers involved in scandalous sin. A presbytery would deal with a particular minister to bring about his repentance or depose him, as the case may be. But if the church courts are corrupted, and therefore unable to deal with a scandalous minister, there is no option open to Christians except to separate from the minister or to tolerate his sin. Tolerating sin, of course, is forbidden in the Bible, leaving the former option as the only one that can be followed by a faithful believer. Quote, number five. We distinguish between the ministry in the abstract or the office itself which is Christ's institution and the ministers in the concrete or the persons invested with the office. So albeit the ministry can by no means be disowned without the highest rebellion against God and rejecting of man's salvation, yet such ministers that belong to the Presbyterial Church of Scotland against whom there are solid and just exceptions according to the word of God and the acts of the General Assembly striking against them persisting in their courses even unto deposition may be withdrawn from by people who would rightly see to the approving of themselves faithful in their station unto God. Unquote. Page 62. Clearly Christ has established an office of ministers for the church and no Presbyterian would deny that. The ministry has been established as an office by the head of the church and must be supported by every Christian. However, that doesn't mean the particular individuals who have been invested with that office are necessarily always to be approved. Sometimes unrepentant scandalous ministers have to be deposed. However, in a situation where it is clear, according to the Bible and the Westminster Standards, that a minister should be deposed and he isn't, Christians must separate from him. This does not in any way involve rejecting the office of minister. Instead, it is rejecting the particular individual who has shown himself unfit for office. Quote, number six. We distinguish between a faithful and a sinless ministry. The former we have ground to expect, but in no case the latter. And for the want of the former qualification we have ground to withdraw, that is, when they are not faithful, but from none because they are not sinless, Page 62. Even today faithful covenanters are accused of arguing that ministers must be sinless in order to be accepted, but this is utterly false. No one is sinless in this life except Christ himself. Therefore, no one can be expected to be sinless. However, it is not unreasonable to expect ministers to be faithful to biblical doctrine and practice. Instead, every Christian should expect his minister to be faithful and reprove him when he is not. Faithfulness is what God requires from ministers and should also be what every Christian requires from ministers. Quote, number seven. As to what we require of unfaithful ministers before we can join with them, we distinguish between ministers condemning doctrinally, and confessing privately by conference with offended brethren, or repenting to them after some more public manner their defections and offenses, and their confessing these ecclesiastically before church judicatories, and submitting to their just and equal censures. The former we judge sufficient in the present circumstances, howbeit we confess that the latter, if afterward they be called unto it, should not be refused and denied, when there shall be any judicatory to require it. Pages 62 to 63. Under normal conditions, a scandalous minister would have to publicly repent before church courts and receive censure for his sinful behavior. However, when faithful church courts are not available due to the church being in a broken state, it is enough for the minister to repent before the faithful remnant of Christians who are upholding reformation attainments. Quote, number eight. We distinguish between a separation negative, whether actively or passively considered, and a separation positive. A positive separation is when a party not only leaves communion with the church, whereunto they were formerly joined in Christian and ministerial duties, but also gathers up new distinct churches, different from the former in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government. A negative passive separation is when the better part of a church, standing still and refusing to follow and concur with the backsliding part of the same church, after they have become obstinate in their declinings from former sound principles and practices, holds closely by and adheres unto what parts of Reformation were graciously attained among them. Separation negative and active respects the declining part of the Church who have deserted their faithful brethren, and after brotherly admonition refuse to return, but hold on in their new course. Hence, as for us, we absolutely deny a positive separation from the Scottish covenanted Church, yea, also separation negative if it be considered actively. At the furthest, Herein we acknowledge a separation negative passively considered in our being left alone at first in the time of our greatest straits and forsaken by the rest, for we are endeavoring to our utmost, with many failings and much weakness, to retain and maintain according to our station and capacity the covenanted work of reformation of the Church of Scotland against popery, prelacy, erastianism, and sectarianism, both more refined and more gross, together with schism and defection." So we deny and altogether disown a separation from communion with this Church in her doctrine worship, discipline, and government, as she was in her best and purest days. For we only oppose the transgressions and defections of this church and endeavor to separate from these, while we choose to stand still and not go alongst with other in declining and offensive courses, but to follow the footsteps of such faithful ministers and professors as have gone before us, witnessing in their places and stations against both tyranny and apostasy until defections be condemned and offenses removed. Pages 63 to 64. Thus, separation can take different forms. People can separate from a church in order to set up a distinct church with different doctrine and practices. This is called positive separation. People can backslide from biblical attainments in doctrine and practice, thus breaking off from the more faithful element of the church body. This is called negative active separation. Finally, People who adhere to biblical attainments can end up in a separate church body because those with whom they were previously united drifted away from the attainments, leaving the faithful ones alone in the original position. The faithful ones in the original position experienced negative passive separation, since their separation from the others resulted from their commitment to the existing biblical reformation attainments. This is the only lawful form of ecclesiastical separation positively sanctioned by scripture. Romans 16 verse 17 in our own day, the Puritan Reformed Church, or PRC, has been accused of being a schismatic church because it holds to the original covenant or position of adhering to all the attainments of the Reformation. The charge of schism arises from the PRC's unwillingness to unite with Presbyterian groups that have defected, to one degree or another, from Reformation attainments. The contemporary Covenanters of the PRC have followed the old paths of the Covenanted Reformation, while these other groups have strayed into other doctrines and practices condemned by our Reformed forefathers. It is these other groups that are truly schismatic. The faithful Presbyterians of the 17th century, the Covenanters, have set out biblical landmarks as helps for us to uphold and promote the Reformation. We dare not bury, ignore, or remove these landmarks, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Proverbs 22:28. As they agree with Scripture, there is considerable irony in the charge of schism being made by those who have moved the ancient landmarks against those who haven't. This occurred in the 1600s during the first Reformation and is occurring again now. Choose you this day: will you follow the path of faithfulness marked out by Reformation's landmarks and attainments, confessions and covenants, etc., or modern defections and innovations? Rejecting these biblical attainments will leave you in a position of positive or negative active schism from the faithful Church.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves,